This is Muslim Footprints, an opportunity to deep dive into Muslim civilizations through the ages, accompanied by some of the best experts and academics in their field. My name is Aisha Dyer. Over the centuries, Ismaili thinkers have stressed the importance of maintaining a balance between the physical world and the spiritual world to achieve perfection of the soul. Among these thinkers is the Persian intellectual Nasser Khosro, an 11th century traveller, a poet and a philosopher. His works include a travelogue, the Safarnama, poetry, including works called the Book of Enlightenment and the Book of Happiness, and philosophy on Ismaili doctrine. Nasser Khosro explained that through the Quran and its various physical requirements, regular prayer, for example, or alms for the poor, or making the pilgrimage, esoteric matters are transformed into a state that can be understood by humankind. To recognize the true purpose or intellectual reality of these physical acts, a believer must look for their inner meaning. So the external would be, for example, the Quran is a book and is speech, and the prophet brings the book. The Shiite theology says it's great that God brings a book, sends a book, but there needs to be an explainer for the book. That's Alice Huntsberger. She's written a book about the life of Nasser Khosrow. And so that explainer, uh, Moses had Aaron and Muhammad had Ali, and who is divinely inspired to explain the, the external book. And so you have an external reality of a book, and then you have the internal uh, explanation. So, and you have a prophet, and you have an imam who will explain it. The overall idea is that everything external or apparent has a deeper meaning that's internal or veiled. So you have a physical world and a spiritual world. You have a body and a soul. You have knowledge and action. And these polarities, the external and the internal, work in parallel. I spoke to Alice from New York, where she teaches at the State University of New York College at Old Westbury. You've divided Nasser Khosrow's life up into four periods. The years leading up to this turning point, this epiphany he had at the age of 40, the seven-year journey he undertook through the Muslim world, documented in the Safarname, or Book of Travels, his return home to Khurasan as a missionary for Ismailis in the region, and finally, his exile in the Pamir Mountains of Badakhshan. Let's talk about this turning point, which happened around 1050. What were the circumstances which prompted Nasser Khosrow to change his life? Yes. Um, Nasser Khosrow is from the city of Marv um, in the, an area 
of, of Kobadian, of Khorasan. And so it's very, very Persian, very clear uh, sense of itself as um, this is where the, the Abbasid um, revolution started against the Umayyads. And very sure of its its history of having many uh, empires and its culture, its high culture. But the Seljuks had taken over, and so he witnessed this, and was part of this Turkic taking over of the Persian Islamic lands. And uh, he comes from a very cultured family. They his they had worked in the administration, and and so he was educated. Um, and certainly learned uh, poetry, and he studied the sciences very well, and was working as a tax collector for the Seljuks. And he tells us this in his Safarnome, the first pages of his Safarnome. And he says, I was pretty good at my job. I I, I had obtained no small fame uh, for for my work. And, but he's on this business trip with some other men, and they're uh, traveling around, get, picking up the, going to pick up the taxes from different towns. And it's on this trip that he has this epiphany. So one night, they're all sitting around a campfire playing poetry games. And on that night, there's this auspicious conjunction of planets. So he goes away from the group and he says a prayer asking for true wealth then he goes to sleep and he has a dream. And his in his dream, um, a voice comes and says, what are you doing being drunk all the time? And he says, well, the world has not given us anything else to lessen the sorrows of this world. And the voice, the man says, to be without your intellect is no relief. He points down toward the Qibla and um, says, Seek and ye shall find. So Nasser wakes up and he is astounded by this dream. He, he, he realizes right then that he lets the dream speak to him as a sign that he should change his life. And he does immediately. He records the date in two calendars. He records the date in the Islamic calendar and in the old Persian calendar of of the date that he goes to the mosque and washes himself and cleanses himself and makes a commitment to his new life. And then he uh, sells all his things, gets rid of all his debts, uh, quits his job, and he sets out on his journey. His initial destination was Mecca, which he doesn't tell us much about then. He says he'll come back to it later. And actually, he ends up in Fatimid Cairo, the headquarters of the Ismaili Imam Khalif. I would actually say when the person, the man in the dream points to the Qibla, it's literally Mecca, but it's also Cairo. It's also the imam. And, um, and so he takes along with him uh, his brother and, um, and, a, and, and a servant, a, a, a slave from India. And they, they set out, they go rather quickly. I wish they had gone sl- more slowly, but he's 
on a mission. He's trying to get there. It takes him a year to get to Cairo, uh, but he passes. What direction does he go? He doesn't go the slow, the fastest way. He doesn't go to Baghdad. He goes across um, northern Iran. So he stops first at Nishapur, which, as you know, is the town of Omar Khayyam, and it's also the town of the Sufi saint uh, Bastami, who was one of the the ones who are so bowled over and in ecstasy with their connection with God that they say inappropriate things. They say, like, Ahalaj says, Anal-Haq, and which cost him his life, and best on me also says, glory be to me. So Nasser Khosrow stops there. In the, this is a very important town, and pays his respects, and then keeps going. He's interested in everything. What struck me was how he described every town's walls. He would say, he would actually walk them out and say exactly how wide they are, what they're made of, how tall they are, uh, how big a city it is. And the second thing he tells us is where they get their water. And it's a fascinating description. I was thinking of making a chart of it, that which ones uh, collect the rainwater, which ones have rain pipes, which unfortunately are made of lead, which is considered very good at that time. Um and which ones have the streams that go through, like you build your house over a stream. So the water is running through your basement and cool is a cool room in the, in the heat. And then as he's continuing on, he gives us one little detail that I'm like, wait, what did he just say? He says, on the way, you know, on the way toward Beirut, he says, I saw a little boy holding a red rose in one hand and a white rose in the other. And then we went on to Tripoli or wherever the next one is. And I'm like, wait a second. What did he, why did he tell us this? It struck, a, struck me that this is a little window onto Nasser Hostro's character, the things that he's noticing and the things he's including. Like he, he didn't tell us lots of things, but he did tell us this little lesson. I don't think there's a, hidden meaning in it. I think he's he thinks it's a delicate, beautiful moment. I think he it he may be coming out of winter and now it's nice, beautiful Mediterranean uh, weather and they have roses in that month. And the fact that there's a red one and a white one shows variety and things. So I just think it's a delightful little anecdote that he gives us. And then he gets to Jerusalem and he stays there and he goes to Dome of the Rock and uh, the, the Holy Sanctuary, the farthest mosque. And around there, he makes sure to go to all the shrines of Abraham and Sarah and the others. And um, so he's paying his respects at, at, all, at uh, you know, all the religious places that, that are important in Islam. And he makes a... You can tell he's um, really going toward Cairo because he said, we just made a quick hajj. That his, his goal is not to end up in, in Mecca, but his goal is to get to Cairo. But he's going to make a quick hajj. So eventually he arrives in Fatimid Cairo, where he will spend three years. And it sounds splendid. 
Yes, yes. The, well, he has he uh, he can't praise Cairo enough, right? He uh, praises the 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 political structure, the way that it is run. They pay the judges so they can't be bribed. They pay the soldiers so they won't bother people as you know running through you know stealing food from people or demanding food from people. So this this leads to a happier citizenry. He tells us all the details that are in a bazaar. I estimated that there were no less than 20,000 shops in Cairo. Every sort of rare goods from all over the world can be had there. I saw tortoise shell implements, such as small boxes, knife handles, and so on. I also saw extremely fine crystal, which the master craftsmen etch most beautifully. I saw the following fruits and herbs all in one day. Red roses, lilies, narcissus, oranges, citrons, limes and other citrus fruits. Apples, jasmine, basil, quince, pomegranates, pears, melons of various sorts, bananas, olives, mirobolan, fresh dates, grapes, sugarcane, eggplants, fresh squash, turnips, radishes, cabbage, fresh beans, cucumbers, green onions, fresh garlic, carrots, and beets. In old Cairo, they make all types of porcelain, so fine and translucent, that you can see your hand behind it when held up to the light. From this porcelain, they make cups, bowls, plates, and so forth. They also produce a glass so pure and flawless that it resembles chrysolite, and it is sold by weight. One of the things that he talks about and gives great detail is the fabrics. And fabrics have sometimes been described as one of the major, major uh, products of the whole Islamic world. The the innovation that they um, uh, evidenced and uh, creativity of design and quality so that uh, a lot of uh, fabrics are named for the place like damask a damask bro- brocade is obviously from damascus but shustari i think it's a kind of a silk comes from shush and and um and mosul is the the source name for muslin so a lot of the the Islamic world is producing fabrics, and the Fatimids are famous for having uh, several islands in the Nile Delta uh, devoted to fabric production and embroidery. For example, the island of Tinnis and the island of Damietta. If you've been to um, Venice, you see how you can take islands and devote them to one, so like in the island of um, um, Burano in, in Venice, that's devoted to lace. You see, you go there, they got, you have lace, you buy lace. If you go to Murano, it's all for the glass factories. So we have Tinnis producing this most glorious fabrics and, and embroidery, which is in most of the biggest museums of the world. I want to share a couple of anecdotes from Nasr Khosrow about this island, Tinnis, that show how desirable its fabrics were. It was like the Italy of today. You have the King of Fars in southern Iran, for example, 
sending 20,000 dinars to buy one suit of clothing. Apparently, his agents stayed there several years, but failed to procure the suit. And the king of Byzantium once offered a hundred cities in exchange for the island. What he wanted was Bukalamun. It means chameleon because it changes color. Bukalamun is, you know, that iridescent fabric, gold and blue, for example. And so it looks a little bit gold, more gold, depending on how it, it moves. But for Nasser Khosrow, this becomes a symbol of changeability. And he says the world is Bukalamun. The world, you should not trust it because it is like Bukalamun. Sometimes it's a little gold, sometimes it's a little blue. What we want to be focused on is something more long-lasting and eternal and spiritual. Nasser Khosrow lived in Cairo for three years. Then he decided it was time to go home. And he went home via Mecca. Altogether, he went to Mecca four times, as Fatimid rule extended to the holy cities of Mecca and Medina as well. And he would accompany the caravans that the Fatimids would send there with provisions and the cloth to cover the Kaaba. His description of the Hajj is one of the earliest that we have. What he points out is the dangers. He doesn't whitewash it, but he shows you could get robbed along the way. You certainly could die along the way. It would take years to get there. What I like to tell my 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 students in college is like the the trains out west in America. These outlaws would stop the train or stop the stagecoach and rob it. And so you have caravan filled with hundreds of people, maybe a thousand ca uh, camels going along, and they can easily be robbed and uh, uh, and killed along the way. So uh, he he shows that as a definite uh, reality of the sacrifice that actually making the physical Hajj was. And the Hajj is one example of where he reveals his basic premise that there's this physical world and this spiritual world and our actions in the physical world all have an inner meaning or consequence. He expressed this in a poem where he basically reprimands one of his friends for not doing the Hajj in this way. I say to him, when you are throwing stones at the accursed demon, did you throw out of yourself all your blameworthy habits and actions? He said no. I say to him, when you went to pray at the station of Abraham, did you surrender your inner self to God in truth, faith, and utter certitude? He said no. I say to him, when it came to the time for circumambulation, which you ran trotting like an ostrich, did you think of the angels who circle round the throne of God? He said no. I say to him, when you made the run between Safa and Marwa, did you see within your own purity the two worlds and your heart become free of both hell and heaven? He said no. I say to him, now that you have returned, is your heart bleeding from separation from the Kaaba? 
Did you prepare a grave there for your carnal soul, just as if now you turned into decomposed bones? He said, everything you said about all this, I haven't known the right from wrong. Then I said, in that case, my friend, you have made no hudge. You have not become a dweller in the station of self-effacement. You have merely gone to Mecca, seen it and come back and bought the suffering of the desert with silver. After this, if you really want to make the hajj, then go and do as I have taught you. The rest of the episode continues in just a moment after this message. On behalf of the team at The Ismaili, we'd like to thank you for tuning in to this first episode of our brand new podcast, Muslim Footprints. We very much hope you're enjoying this show and would be grateful if you could leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform and subscribe so you don't miss our next episode. We appreciate your support and look forward to bringing you more valuable content in the future. Now, back to the show. Now, Sirakusro's journey home is quite eventful. He's destitute for some reason, and the journey this time through Iraq is quite unpleasant. Yes. I love the story that he tells. It's, it's, um, he's a Persian background. He does not like drinking camel milk, and he does not like eating lizards from the desert. Um, he considers this barbaric. So he has to wait there in Falaj, and he says it's the most awful place, and it, there's nobody he can talk to. There are no, you know, no intellectuals around. And um, out of perhaps boredom one day, he says, so I took out the paints from my bag and I started painting the mihrab, the part around the, the arch in the, in the mosque. And he paints some plants, some leaves, and probably flowers and things. And I'm, again, here's this little detail he just throws out. Uh, the people are so excited by this great art that he's making. And they say, paint it more, paint it more. Uh, we'll give you, we'll pay you with what we have. And what we have is dates. So he said, well, we had enough dates to eat forever and ever. Uh, at, but at least we weren't starving anymore. But I want us to step back a second. We never heard he was an artist. We never heard he was a painter. I mean, of course, he would have his pens as a as a writer. He would have his uh, pen case and 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 ink and and all the all the tools that a writer needs. But here, he also has colors and paint brushes, so he can he can paint. So we get to learn more about his personality. And you say that's part of the reason you bring in all these anecdotes, to show that you can't put a label on him as this or that. He's someone with many layers and nuances. What I wanted to do in Ruby of Badakhshan was to counter some of the things I had read about him. There was one article that I read that the title of it was The Scowling Poet because his poetry, he's often saying, 
don't think about this world, think about the next world, you know, don't stay around with stupid friends, be with good friends, right? He's preaching. If you want um, love or if you want just roses and nightingales, you're not going to get them from him. And he and he complains about that. He says, how much, how many roses and nightingales do you want? You know, we have to be focused on other things. So showing these little details of the rose and the painting of the mihrab, I th- and, and then, oh, there's the joke of the grocer that he starts out, when he's starting out his journey, he... Um, he sends his brother in to get to the grocery shop, shop to get some things. He goes see what they have. And he comes back and says that he doesn't have anything. So they go in and they check. And whatever they asked him, you know, you have some bread? No. You have, you have apples? No. You have um, meat? No. You have potatoes? No. And so he looks at his brother and he's like, whoa, this, what kind of a grocer is this who has nothing in his shop to sell? And he says that forever after, throughout the whole journey, whenever we saw a guy that looked like that, we said, oh, there's that grocer from Kharzavil. And so they have a joke, an ongoing joke. So if we want to see a little of his personality, who is this character um, that is driving this whole trip and this journey? Also, he meets somebody who's teaching math. He says he studied it from Avicenna. And he says, I, of course, he dropped that name because he just wanted me to be impressed with him that he had studied with Avicenna, but then he didn't know anything. He is, you know, sharp and critical and uh, isn't going to take anybody acting like a fool or trying to show off um, without uh, right to show off. Presumably because of his proselytizing, he's forced to spend his final years in exile in Badakhshan. And so how to fill in these other years and what happened in one of his books, he says, I send out a book a year, a book a year I send out into the world. So, um, so he's producing, he's producing all kinds of different, different, uh, Ismaili texts. And, um, uh, he, he said, I even wrote a book on mathematics not because there's anybody here who would understand it. I'm writing it for the researchers of the future. And I found that so tender. That, And I think this is where we start getting into in, more into his personality, that even when things are not going well for us, even when we're not where we want to be, the job is to keep working and to keep sending things out, even not for this time. But perhaps someone in the future will understand this and will draw some lessons from it. Speaking of lessons, one legacy of Nasser Khosrow's writing for people today is this search for knowledge At a Quran colloquium organized by the Institute of Ismaili Studies in 2003, the Aga Khan, the 49th hereditary imam of the Ismailis, who refer to him as Molana Hazri Imam, cites Nasser Khosrow as well as another Muslim philosopher, 
al-Kindi in this context. The Quran itself acknowledges that people upon whom wisdom has been bestowed are the recipients of abundant good. They are the exalted ones. Hence, Islam's consistent encouragement to Muslim men and women to seek knowledge wherever it is to be found. We are all familiar that Al-Kindi, even in the ninth century, saw no shame in acknowledging and assimilating the truth, whatever its source. He argued that truth never abases, but only enables its seeker. Poetizing the Prophet's teaching, Nasi Khosro, the 11th century Iranian poet-philosopher, also extols the virtue of knowledge. For him, true jihad is the war that must be waged against the perpetrators of bigotry through spreading knowledge that dispels the darkness of ignorance and nourishes the seed of peace that is innately embedded in the human soul. So it's not just about seeking knowledge then. It's not enough to just sit around reading books all day. You have to spread that knowledge through action. That's something that Nasser Khosrow insists on, the role of the body and the physical world in achieving perfection of the soul. And he says these two things, knowledge and action, go together at all times. And, for example, here he, ha- he has a poem that says, um, moisten the seed of action with knowledge, for the seed will not grow without moisture. So we we have to that they he he says they have to go together. It can't be that you just sit there learning, learning, learning. You must then go into the world and use that knowledge and do something with it. And then a poetic one about the image of light. He says, If you would light a lamp within your heart, make knowledge and action your wick and oil. Which is, if you want to have this light within your heart, your wick and oil for your lamp must be knowledge and action. He takes another uh, image He says, your body is like a mine, a diamond mine or a ruby mine. He says, your body's a mine, your spirit, the buried jewel. So exert yourself, both body and soul. Again, the the same lesson that you mustn't just do one or the other. You have to involve both your body and your soul. And another, he point that he pushes is using intellect in your faith. So using your mind not just to learn what other people say is important, but to find it yourself. And he says, because of our minds, we are the overlords over donkeys. But also those same minds minds of ours make us slaves to the Lord. So the very thing, having a mind, having an intellect that makes us over donkeys, yes, we're better than donkeys, it makes us 
also the slave to the Lord. And then he has a great line, right? Why do you suppose God gave you a mind for eating and sleeping like donkeys? Why did you choose to make Nasser Khosrow the focus of so much of your career? It's a, it's a long story. My parents are um, American Christians. They both come from very religious families. And uh, we would always go to church every Sunday and say a blessing before the meal. And my father even comes from a family of missionaries. So American missionaries that went in the 1800s to Bombay. And then another branch went to China. So the going out into the world was a big part of the family. And then since my college days in the 60s, JFK, Kennedy was saying, don't ask what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. And he started the, um, the Peace Corps to go out into the world. So it was a national movement for Americans to go out into the world. And I thought I would do that. And your way of going out into the world was to study Persian. So my whole um, undergraduate was studying Middle East languages and cultures with the goal toward getting to Persian. And every time I had to choose a course or write a paper, it always had to do with religion. So because I'm so steeped in religion and prayer and going to church and asking questions. And then when it came time to choose a doctoral dissertation... I said, what can I do? And so I said, Nasser Hosro, everybody says he's so good, but what does he say? What did he say? And so I said, well, then that, that's what you're going to look at. And so my dissertation became a focus on his, on his soul. And what is Nasser Hosro's doctrine of the soul? Oh, um, what I, what, what we, where we can find it, look, what I did for the dissertation was to look at his prose philosophical text that had been edited. And um, for Nasser Khosrow, it's uh, the one is at the top. That would be God at the top. And then uh, God emanates out um, universal intellect and it emanates out the next um, entity, which is universal soul. And then soul suddenly says, oh my God, I'm now separated from the one. Between me and the one is universal intellect. So I want to get back. I don't want to be separated. I want to get back to the one. And so that desire to get back uh, generates the physical world. And then we must take action. We take action to go back toward the one. God, intellect, soul, nature. A model of creation which follows closely the Neoplatonic philosopher Plotinus. And Nasser Khosrow also connected this model to the name of God, Allah. So, Allah consists of four letters in Arabic. Alif, Lam, another Lam, and Aha. And those letters correspond to these four levels or dimensions. God, 
the universal intellect, the universal soul, and nature or the material world. I'm simplifying, but that's just another example of esoteric or inner interpretation of something literal. Anyway, so then you send your dissertation off to the head of the Institute of Ismaili Studies at the time, who was Dr. Farhad Duftari, because you thought Ismailis might be interested in your work. And he sent an answer back. He said, that's an excellent dissertation, but could you also write about his, his life and his travels and his poetry? And so that's how we ended up with this book, The Ruby of Badakhshan. What's next in your Nasser Khosrow journey? What I'd like to do is see if I can look more at the, the Ismaili world to the east of where Nasser Khosrow might have gone, like the towns in Pakistan today of Multan and Mansouria and Lahore, but even up into uh, Samarkand and Bukhara and uh, also... Uh, even in the different towns in Badakhshan one day. I, so like Nazar Khosr, I hope to uh, make another trip to the east and uh, see what else he left there. Alice's book is called Nasser Khosro, The Ruby of Badakhshan. Muslim Footprints is developed and produced by Kalima Communications in partnership with The Ismaili. Our theme tune is Mola Mama Jan, performed by Black Heat. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd be delighted if you leave a review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening to Muslim Footprints. <laughs>